Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime, and Thought-Provoking Events. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore topics that will hopefully allow us to learn from past events and also sometimes cause us to think about things that we probably wouldn't think about. And that's what I want to look at today. Um, today I'll be covering an event that really falls into an overshadowed event category. Um, I've mentioned previously that I had thought about, you know, doing different types of podcasts, but to have a different one for each topic that I wanted to cover would almost be unmanageable. Um, but one of the topics that I did want to focus on sometimes was when things were overshadowed by something else. For example, or example, in an earlier episode, I mentioned how Harriet Quimby was the first woman to cross the English Channel um, flying, but she did that the day after the Titanic had sunk. So her accomplishments were overshadowed by a great human tragedy just the day before. And today I will also be looking at something aviation-based. I had not actually intended to finish and publish this episode for this particular time, um, but some of the information or topics in the episode I had planned on publishing, given the events of the past week and what happened in Texas, even though this episode was not directly in any way um, covering the same topic. It did, however, involve children, and I just knew myself. I don't think I would have been able to cover it appropriately. Looking at, you know, even news articles or shows, um, you know, news shows about the events that happened in Texas and are continuing to happen throughout the United States. It was just very, very emotional to think of those parents, the children, the teachers trying to protect the children, having two of my own. Um, so I just wanted to, to kind of move the other one back since it did involve children. And, you know, thinking about and looking at what happened in Texas this past week, I know we always say thoughts and prayers are being sent and while I know we all mean that in the sincerest sense that, you know, our hearts, our minds, we're all with those who've been victimized in Texas um, with the absolutely senseless shooting that occurred. I don't think there's really words to express, though, that while we say thoughts and prayers I just don't think there's words to even capture what I think many of us are feeling. So with that, you know, again, I've moved back um, an episode and I'm doing this one now. Um, this does involve aviation and I, I have done some that at least touched on aviation recently and I didn't necessarily want to do some so close back to back, but this will be an interesting topic to look at in 
you know, no matter when we're looking at it. So I decided to go ahead and record the episode um, about the overshadowed flight TWA 800. Now, before I start, I do just want to let you know that I am not an expert in any of the fields, including aviation, but I do research items and verify it through at least two or more sources. And the information that I review is publicly accessible. All sources will be linked in the description of the episode. Accidents usually have more than one cause, and we'll see that a lot in this particular crash. TWA 800-1964, which is how I'll refer to this flight, was going to take a very circuitous route that day with a final stop being in Cairo, Egypt. It had started in Kansas City, Missouri, then stopped in Chicago, Illinois, New York, Paris, Milan, then Rome. It was then going to go to Athens with that final stop being in Cairo. After their stop in Rome, the pilots readied the plane and started their takeoff. Captain Vernon Lowell was in charge of this flight. Things progressed normally, and so far, even with their many stops, there were no signs of any issues. Captain Lowell did a visual inspection of the plane, and all looked well. The pilots went over their briefings and did find that there would be some weather in parts of Italy, and so this may have been a tad less than ideal, but overall, not too bad. The first officer would be the pilot flying on this leg of the journey. Something interesting that I found out about this plane is that only one pilot would have access to steering, and that was the captain. So he would need to transfer control of the plane to the first officer after he steered onto the runway. Due to being given complete takeoff clearance to take off, they would not need to hold after turning onto the runway. As a a nearby taxiway was closed while maintenance was being done with heavy equipment in place. In fact, there was some equipment on this particular runway. As the plane began to roll, the pilot saw a warning. Engine number four indicated that there was no thrust. As the plane had not yet gained too much speed, and it was below what's called V1, and this is the speed in which it's still safe to stop a takeoff, the pilot decided that aborting the takeoff was the best option. In this case, the plane was going about 80 knots, and they'd only gone about 800 meters down the runway. This equivocates to going about 92 miles an hour, and they'd gone about 2,625 feet, so about half a mile. Now, witnesses did tell investigators that they did see a problem with the engine as the plane rolled down the runway. And while the pilots did follow normal procedures for slowing down, which included putting the engines to idle, using the speed brakes, and employing full reverse thrust on engines, this did not save the plane from disaster. The main source of slowing down on planes can be the thrust reversers. And I think the best way to explain these are they're kind of like an umbrella that will catch the force of the engines that would normally put out and direct it forward. Instead, these umbrellas would redirect it and put it in reverse. 
I hope I'm explaining that properly. It's just basically still taking the force from the engine, but instead of propelling it forward, it's capturing it and redirecting it to reverse. But the plane did not react in the way that the pilots and the flight crew would have expected. It didn't slow down properly within the expected amount of time. And to what I'm sure was their horror, the pilots also found that they were having trouble with steering. The flight crew was made aware that the right side tires had also blown. To make matters exponentially worse, a piece of machinery from the nearby construction began to cross through the plane's path. The last 2,000 feet of this active runway was undergoing construction, though while any obstruction could be catastrophic, this piece of equipment was a compactor. You know, those tractors that kind of look like they have a gigantic rolling pin in the front to, that kind of rolls over and over or compacts dirt or asphalt, you know, a steamroller almost. Um, it was referred to as a compactor, but you know, I might refer to it as a roller throughout some of the episode. Now, with the plane having multiple issues to this point, with engine four originally not showing thrust, and then also the plane not showing down, slowing down, and them having trouble with steering, there was nothing they could do to stop from hitting this compactor. Fortunately, the driver did survive, but the number four engine, the already tricky and, you know, damaged, it seemed like, number four engine, hit the roller and it tipped over um, the roller and the engine came off in the process. It took about another 260 meters to stop the plane. Something to remember is that this plane was about to take off as well and had a lot of fuel on board. While an evacua evacuation began very quickly, fire overtook many of the exits and only 23 of those on board were able to escape before an explosion rocked the plane. While the flight crew again was following all specific procedures for this, including Captain Lull stopping fuel to the engines and employing a fire suppressant system, all of these precautions did not work. Captain Lowell did go into the cabin to assist once he was finished his checklist in the cockpit. Seeing the issues that the cabin crew was having within the evacuation, he thought that if he could get outside, he could help evacuate people externally. There is an emergency rope in the cockpit that will allow the flight crew to escape if their means to an exit of the plane is blocked. He made use of this rope and jumped out of the plane. Now, I do want to make this clear. From everything that I've read regarding his actions during this flight, as well as his actions afterward, he did whatever he could do to try to help everybody on this plane. Some people may look at it and think he was trying to escape the crash, but I don't believe that was the case, again, based on everything that I've read about him. It seems like he was trying to think of any viable option to try to help people out of the plane. However, the, plane, the flames had already overtaken even on the ground sections of the plane. The fuel fed the flames. Some of the people who did actually make it out of the plane were on fire when they actually exited. Captain Lowell did his best to help them and stamp out the flames.
The 50 that were left on board succumbed to the blast. 44 immediately and a further six later at the hospital. All 23 of the survivors were said to be injured to some extent. Now, there are so many questions that come up when reading just the first few paragraphs of the incident. What was wrong with engine number four? Why didn't the reverse thrust work properly? Was V1 properly calculated? What happened to the steering mechanism? And why was a heavy piece of construction equipment crossing an active runway? How much did each of these play into the cause and extent of the accident? So, okay, I know hitting a piece of machinery, a power roller, was a huge factor in what happened. But the previous questions need to be answered first before we get into why anybody thought heavy machines should be working simultaneously with planes and why the operator of that roller did not stop before crossing the runway where, you know, a much, much larger machine was actually hurtling at him. Not trying to assign blame here, but I don't think I'd care if my boss told me to cross that runway. I would wait until it was fully off the runway. So the investigation did begin quickly. And while I don't know how quickly word of the accident would have circumnavigated the world back then, you know, whereas now everybody would know within moments, I do know that the whole aviation community needed to know the answers as to what happened and they needed to know as soon as possible so if it was a malfunction of any part of the plane, they could address that before it happened again. More so, the families of those killed and injured in the crash needed these answers. There was a United Press International photographer there and he did give a witness statement his name was Giuseppe Di Tiam Battista. He said, quote, There was a big explosion, not sharp like a gunshot, but rumbling like something volcanic, and an enormous spurt of fire. The plane just wasn't there anymore. I don't see how anyone could have lived through it. End quote. So with that description, I'm almost I'm almost picturing a thunderstorm, at least where I live. While it doesn't happen often, sometimes the thunder will start to kind of rumble. It will be a low rumble until it actually builds up to this loud, loud clap of thunder. That's the feeling that I got. I could almost really feel it like a vibration um, when I was thinking about it. So you know, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced that, but that's what I you know, really thought of. One of the passengers who did survive by the name of Michel Guillan of Rome, who was a glass salesman, said, quote, When I saw the flames coming from the right wing, I stood up and yelled, Help! I saw one of the pilots working the emergency device on the doors, and I tried to get to one. I saw a hostess near me fall and lose consciousness when she hit her head. I dragged her for a few yards and got her out. End quote. Now, as we see with a lot of accidents, most of the survivors were seated near the back of the airplane. Um, and I'm not sure how many people watch or read about different um, incidents, but a lot of times those who are sitting near the rear of the plane have a better chance of survival. So many of those who did survive were in that rear part of the plane. 
Now, as for our glass salesman, um, you know, he did get the stewardess out and, you know, she had begun opening the emergency doors even before the plane had come to a complete halt. Okay, this next part is a little bit graphic as some of the witnesses did indicate that when the plane explode, exploded, they actually did see people being flung from the plane. Now, Captain Lowell was soon interviewed by Italian investigators. Lowell's thoughts as to why this accident may have happened was because of thrust asymmetry. So this is basically when, you know, you have the thrust on each side. It's supposed to be, you know, two engines, but with asymmetry, that means one is not working or not working properly to its fullest power, whereas those on the other side are. It throws the plane off balance and can pretty much make it impossible to control depending on how severe the asymmetry is. Um, kind of think of it as if your car is out of line and, you know, it's not going to go straight naturally. You kind of have to try to, you know, work with it or force it. But that's, this is not a car. This is a machine that weighs tons that has four mega engines on it. So having that asymmetry, you know, it would be, again, almost impossible to be able to control. Now, after questioning, he somehow would have to get through the night being so far from home and away from his friends and family. And all the time thinking about those who did not survive the crash and of those people whose lives would be irreversibly changed. These thoughts, I'm sure, were battling in his mind. And we also need to remember that he knew some of the people who died, some of the crew, um, his colleagues that he may have had dinner with before, that he laughed as they showed him pictures of their family. And they were now gone, and he had been the pilot of the plane. Now, it took over a year for the investigators to publish their report. Captain Lowell's thoughts on thrust asymmetry were accurate. The thrust reverser on engine two had failed because one of the ducts on the hydraulic system was not connected. So basically, this umbrella that I mentioned where it's supposed to redirect um, the force to make it a reverse thrust, and you may see it sometimes if you read through documents, see them listed as clamshells because they also do kind of look like that. Engine number two's reverse thrust did not work. So as the other thrust reversers were pushing back in one direction, number two was really still going in the other. Now, as I read this first in my research, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around this. Now they had made other stops previously this was near the end of their very long journey with a number of different stops. And I'm just wondering that if something was disconnected, when did that happen? At this particular stop, did there, um, you know, was there anything that maintenance might have done to check on the plane and accidentally disconnected? You know, I, I would have felt if this was done earlier before they took off for this flight, even from Missouri, that any impact of that being disconnected would have already been felt. So I admit I was rather confused as to why it would be disconnected and how it became disconnected when they'd already gone through so many stops. But 
no matter the reason why, this made the plane go to the right as the flight crew was trying to stop it. The lights in the cabin that let the crew know of the reverser's status did not indicate that number two was not working properly. It just indicated that all of them were deployed. So according to the lights, everything looked like it was fine. So as the captain was approaching the steamroller, he knew that he had to act fast. This led him to do what he thought was right. And in just my humble non-aviation opinion, based on the information that he had or didn't have in this case, he made the decision to actually increase the reverse thrust on engines one and two, not knowing that this would exacerbate all of the problems that he was already facing. The actions that he took should have turned the plane to the left so that they could avoid the steamroller, but with number two's thrust reversers not working properly, the plane did not behave the way it should have. This actually put them in more dire straits, pushing the plane even more towards the steamroller. And so yes, the steamroller, one of the many, many factors that led to the loss of life that day. It was actually considered acceptable to have the machinery on the runway as the runway was long enough that it would still have enough room for a plane of this size to take off. I don't know what anybody else is thinking, but I'm thinking no way in heck am I going on that steamroller to cross paths with a plane, nor am I going to be piloting a plane that has a potential to have heavy machinery crossing it. But even though consideration was given for the fact that, you know, calculating the plane's weight, how much it needed for takeoff, they did not consider the fact of what if something happens to the plane. There was even enough room factored in that if they needed to abort the takeoff that they could do so. However, that was with the plane actually working properly, which if you're going to reject or abort a takeoff, that may mean that your plane is not actually working quite so, you know, properly. And this would then be one of the factors that just multiplied to create the tragic loss of life. So there were so many issues happening, each impacting or increasing the impact of the other. As I said earlier, you know, with many accidents, it's not usually just one incident that directly causes most of the harm to people. It can be a buildup of a number of different factors. And then once a plane does land, crash, um, aboard a takeoff that involves a, a hard like landing or anything like that, um, it's not always the impact that actually creates most of the injuries or the resulting loss of life. It can be fire. This is increased if the plane is loaded with fuel. So takeoff already being one of the most dangerous parts of the airplane trip, is now increased with a risk of fire damage if the plane were to happen to cra crash close to takeoff. So this accident was no exception. When the plane hit the machinery, a fuel line broke. This was in the already touchy engine number four, and since number four had been ripped from the plane, fuel was flowing through the damage lines and out um, to really be accessible to the fire that was already starting to spread. The fire had really started and used access points. So seeing, 
again, we can't really say fire sees, but it's just attracted to other flammable items. So it saw other weakened and damaged areas of the plane as entry points. And as the actual impact to the steamroller itself felt small and non-urgent, the people on board the plane may not have realized the danger that they were in. I'm just kind of going to go back to another famous incident that I actually just spoke about a few moments ago, but that is when the Titanic sank. The initial impact really wasn't felt that much by the people on board. Plus, they were feeling this sense of probably invincibility as the, the ship had been touted as almost unsinkable. And it wasn't that initial impact that injured people. It was the fact that the bulkheads didn't come all the way to the top and you know more bulkheads were damaged than the boat could handle. So it's as the, the boat actually sunk and the repercussions of it sinking is what actually killed the people on board. In the case of the airplane, the impact itself did not kill anybody. At least it doesn't seem to be. But it was the fact that fuel was coming from those lines and anything, any spark could start a fire and it did. The crew did as they were trained. The flight crew shut down the engines. They activated a fire suppression system, but it was out of control. Between the fire, which, you know, like I just said, was probably sparked off by some type of spark or maybe even um, arcing of an exposed electrical wire, the subsequent explosion from the empty tank with fuel fumes, all of these things were really counting down to the fact that the plane was or had only some borrowed time. Now, something that this incident has in common, I guess you would say, with the later flight, TWA Flight 100, is the effects of fumes. You know, I do try to cover lesser known cases on this podcast, but just to recap a couple of things about the later TWA Flight 800, there were fumes that ignited in a center gas tank. Um, it was a result of events that seemed to almost transpire against the plane. There was a miscommunication about a checked bag and whether or not the passenger was on board. They were wait waiting to take off until this was confirmed, and it was a very, very hot day. Heat was building up under the empty fuel tank with fumes at the top of that tank. There was also issues with insulation and wiring and just so many things that could have triggered a spark or something to start a fire. And we can almost see that with the original or TWA 800-1964 that there were fumes in the plane and the effects were devastating. Even in early aviation, the risk that fumes posed were known. The empty tanks needed to have the fumes neutralized in some way, but the technology of that day did not really allow for it. They didn't know how to do it. Some tanks were under the main body or fuselage of the plane, increasing the areas where fumes could gather. Now, while this next thought was not expressed in any of the articles that I read, I have to wonder if this did indeed play into any decisions that were made during this time in av aviation. 
And it's still a pretty big factor as far as decisions, and that, of course, is money. Of course, airlines wanted to find ways to reduce risk. Even if it's not just to save lives, I'm sure they wanted to keep their reputations intact and not have to pay out anything with lawsuits. Maybe I'm being a little cynical here. But reducing that risk was not so easy all of the time. Planes do have more than one gas tank. The heavier the plane is, the more it costs to fly in terms of fuel. Also, the more fuel that the plane is carrying, the bigger the risk of fire. But fumes are also dangerous. Especially at this time in aviation, it feels like we were almost in a catch-22. But I do, again, have to wonder if cost played any role in that, and that they didn't want to have a lot of fuel that they didn't need on the plane in order, you know, for the fact that it would have been heavier and would have cost more to fly. We probably will never know that answer, but that, you know, again, being cynical was my first thought was about money. But I do know, too, it did mention a lot of pilots did not necessarily want to put gas in the the center tank on the fuselage either. So, you know, again, there are different factors. And no matter what, though, if the plane crashed on takeoff, if there was a lot of fuel that would cause a fire um, to spread, if there was just fumes that could ignite a fire. So either way, it was a dangerous situation no matter what. And the flames of the fire got so intense that firemen, even in their protective gear, could not get any closer than 100 feet to the plane. Also contributing to the loss of life was the accessibility to exits and the way planes were evacuated in cases of an emergency. Currently, the standard time to evacuate a plane is 90 seconds. And planes manufacturers, they do have to prove that a plane can be exited in 90 seconds. Now, while some exits were not accessible on this flight due to fire, other access points couldn't be, could not be seen. So as smoke filled the plane, passengers were dealing not only with breathing issues, with panic of possibly being burned, with trying to find the loved ones that they may have been traveling with, they also needed to know how to get out of the plane without being able to see exactly where they were going. There was recognition that improvements needed to be made on emergency lighting on planes. Nine out of the 10 crew lived, and I personally wonder if this was due to them knowing the layout and access points to the exits better than anyone else who would have been on board, that they could get to the exits first, but unfortunately because of how quickly the fire was spreading, Possibly some who perished in the fire had already succumbed to um, you know, smoke inhalation before they could even get out, which you know, then at some point when the explosion occurred or as the fire was spreading, the crew then had to make the decision to exit. Now, I do just want to point out this did say nine out of the 10 crew had survived. However, I've seen different numbers on different reports there were actually 22 passengers who were either employees of the airline or their family members. So sometimes when I'm reading the number of the crew members and they don't quite add up, I have to wonder possibly if people reviewing the information were counting 
the crew members flying as passengers as actually part of the crew. And what I do find surprising then as well, which kind of feeds back into the familiarity of the plane, is that with those employees who are on board, is there a possibility that, you know, then they knew how to get off quicker and could they have actually been able to assist more people? Again, just kind of thinking about things, um, you know, given the information that we do have, which is much, much more limited than the information on the second TWA Flight 800. But I have to kind of wonder about the other passengers on board, and it would be nice if there was a breakdown of those numbers also to see if just overall familiarity with, with the plane was a contributing factor. Now, the accident did not take place in the U.S., and you know, from what I've read of other investigative reports from around this time period, those reports aren't all um, sorry, aren't always as thorough as what we may be used to in a more recent accident. Normally, if there is a component um, of a U.S. made plane, then the NTSB will investigate currently. But again, the NTSB was not available at that time. It did not exist. So even though the plane... You know, normally now the NTSB would have gone to investigate. It did not do it then, but again, did not exist. But the um, CAB, which was the the Civil Aeronautics Board, is what actually investigated accidents at this time. But if you listen to um, some previous episodes I've done, maybe even on the the Danger on Delmarva podcast, there was kind of, um, I guess you would say a conflict of interest. The CAB kind of controlled a lot of aspects of aviation. They would work to encourage and, um, you know, support the growth of aviation, yet at the same time, they had to investigate aviation accidents. So there was an internal conflict already in that if an accident is deemed to be a product of the plane, um, of you know anything that has long-reaching impacts to the aviation industry, would the CAB then wish to publish those reports fully? So again, CAB is not around anymore. It's now the NTSB, which is an independent agency, so that they do not answer to the FAA. They do make suggestions, though. Now, there were some suggestions made in the Italian investigation report. Um, One was for the pilots to see the position of the thrust reversers. So in this case, everything looked fine because they had deployed the thrust reversers, but number two did not work. So having the ability to see the position would let the pilots make more informed decisions. Number two was to try to find a way to reduce fumes and fume buildup and sparks within the plane. So while it was one suggestion, it did cover a few different topics um, because having a spark with fumes, that's a recipe for disaster. There was also a suggestion to have better slides in emergencies, especially over the exit and wing. Now, something that was not specifically mentioned that I saw as 
a suggestion was I thought about flashover. I actually saw it on a different article. So it did make me think what would happen once the doors were opened and air came in. The fire feeds off oxygen as well as gas or fumes. So it would have been nice to see some more recognition that flashover is a potential. The problem with that is you still have to get off the plane. But possibly addressing or researching flashover, to me at least, could possibly help save some more lives in the future. If it has occurred because of other accidents, then that's great. I'm glad that that was mentioned um, and resolved. But it's just something that I I did think was omitted from this particular report. Um, I did, you know, briefly mention about the discrepancies within the numbers of crew killed. Um, One said nine out of 10 of the regular crew members, and that was from TWA. And what stuck out to me here was it said regular crew members. So that's why I'm thinking there was some confusion possibly with how many people they were counting as crew members, if it also included some who were passengers, because another report, actually two other reports, said that five out of 11 crew members were killed, which means in this case, the number of survivors was six compared to the numbers that TWA put out, which were nine. Also, the total number of crew members differed as well. So to have that exact figure, it's it's not really available to find because there are conflicting numbers throughout every report. Now, this particular crash was the first fatal crash in the American Transatlantic Jet um, Program. So this was really near the, not really the infancy, but childhood of aviation. And flights were being moved more towards going across the Atlantic um, compared to staying within the same continent. So this had been the first fatal crash of the transatlantic flights. This was also the first crash of this in this airport. The airport itself was five years old, and I am trying to, going to try to say this, Fiumicino Airport. Now, unfortunately, this particular time period was not going well for aviation. There had been two other aviation disasters within the previous eight days. So this was number three. Previously, 31 people had died um, in a twin-engine plane um, from Sweden, and it did actually crash in Sweden. So when we say a twin-engined, you know, so this had two engines on it compared to the one that we had or that we're talking about today where it had four, but you know, this was a commercial air flight that did crash. Um, 28 people died in a crash of an airline called Bonanza Airlines, and that was actually in Las Vegas, Nevada. So that was, you know, close to home. That was within the actual United States. Now, at the time of this incident, this was the second worst plane crash in Italy, and that's counting it by the number of people who, um, who passed because of the accident. 
However, unfortunately, other crashes have taken place within Italy where this has moved down to the seventh worst accident, which means there's you know, more accidents with more loss of life that have taken place in Italy. Now, the emphasis on aviation or any type of accident reporting is to make things safer. There's always a effort to make things better. And the captain on this flight became a lifelong proponent of supporting aviation safety. He did write a book after the accident saying, um, titled Aviation Safety is a Myth. So while the book at that time may have been you know, focusing on things that, you know, were not quite so safe in aviation. Thankfully, a lot of the things have been addressed and, you know, things are safer. But going through one of the issues with this particular crash, it did mention how there needed or there was problems with emergency lighting, that people didn't know where they were going and there was an emphasis on trying to um, you know, make sure that there was better emergency lighting, especially at the foot of the um, chairs. This reminded me of another crash that took place in 1983. So almost 20 years after this accident in 1964. On Air Canada Flight 797 in 1983, there was an accident which as with this, was difficult for passengers to get out of the plane. And this particular incident was one of the most important and impactful accidents in regards to improving flight safety. After this accident, there were strip lights put on the bottom or on the floor lining the walkway to make paths to the exit doors. So this helped increase what the um, passengers could look at and try to find their way out instead of either trying to remember by memory and also battling everything that was going on within the plane. Firefighting techniques also um, became standard um, training for flight crews as with this particular flight, a fire had started on the plane, except I will say it, it, the sense of urgency was not really there on the Air Canada flight. But, you know, as time has gone by and the case was studied, then, you know, they did actually start to increase the training for the crew. Now, this is where the, also the 90 seconds come in that it really became a standard and that the um, manufacturers of airplanes have to prove that their aircraft can be evacuated in that 90 seconds. Now, also, the passengers who are over the wings are instructed on how to work the exits. So if you have flown, you've probably heard the flight steward say or ask the person over the wing if they felt comfortable and then to also give them instructions on how to operate the exit. So a lot of changes came, um, came around because of Air Canada Flight 797, but some of these same issues have been brought up earlier with the 1963 TWA 800 crash. 
And I have to wonder if sometimes, you know, because this report did not take place within the U.S., if that made a difference, did it seem as important to know the cause if it didn't take place within our own continent, within, you know, the actual realm of the investigation of the CAB at the time? To me, it shouldn't make a difference as the report should be shared amongst every country and every aviation's board. But I, I still am left wondering why things such as strip lighting and some other improvements were not made you know, more quickly so that when Air Canada Flight 797 occurred, that more people may have been saved on that flight. So it is frustrating to read that. Now, the airplane power, you know, not just thinking about that. Something interesting, though, did come out of studies about the way the human mind um, and our eyes react to changes in lighting. Um, It can take our eyes, um, according to one of the articles I read, um, it can take about 10 to 30 minutes to actually adjust to a darker setting or any change in lighting. So when there's an emergency, crew members might ask for certain things that will actually help passengers' eyes adjust to the changing light. So um, one of the examples that was given is even for the pilots in a cockpit, um, if there's any type of lightning storm outside, they actually raise the cockpit lights up so that it's at a higher level So that way, if there is a flash of lightning, then the pilots have been more acclimated to the bright light. Um, The same reason on the reverse side for a darker setting is the crew may ask um, for certain things such as putting down the shade to the window or pulling it up, whichever um, they may need you to do. But every every moment that your eyes have a chance to adjust to the light, Helps So crew members may ask to do things that seem you know, kind of random or out of the blue, but if it has to do with lighting, it is because um, people now realize the effects of a fast and dra- dramatic change in lighting, how that can affect the eyes, and that it does take some time for the eyes to adjust. Um, kind of dating myself here, but I think we all know that or can remember if you're my age, I'm not going to say my age, but um, the cameras that we used to have with the bright flashes that once you know someone took that picture, your eyes just had this light floating in front of it. And probably to some extent too with the phones we use on our cell phone. But let me tell you, those flashes with you know the manual cameras was really, really bright. And so just kind of think of it that way in terms of eyes adjusting to the light. And besides frustration being there um, regarding this accident in terms of the fact that there was a steamroller that was allowed to be on the runway, the fact that the strip lighting and other types of emergency procedures did not fully take effect until after Air Canada Flight 797, it's also frustrating that the exact causes of some of the previous issues were never really found as to why engine number four failed. 
no one really has that answer. Um, you know, the NTSB again did not exist. So it's not like we can go on and, you know, take a look at the reports that they did because they don't exist. So we don't know why number four failed. Plus, we kind of have to couple that with the fact that it was torn off the plane by the steamroller. So, you know, it looking at that engine, especially then, would they have been able to come up with the conclusion? You know, now we know so much more about what to look for. You know, they can tell if, you know, lights were engaged at a certain time, what the position of, you know, one piece of machinery was at at the time of an accident. We know more about that now, but back in 1964, when you have an engine that apparently already has an issue and then it's torn off the plane, it would be hard for them to come up with the reason why. Even more frustrating was why was engine 2's thrust reverser disconnected? Why? We don't know. And I mean, this is something that I think should have really been followed through on with a vigor, with just tenacious, uh, I can't even speak, tenacity, because if this actually happened by accident, if there was a weakness somewhere in there that caused there to be a disconnection, that needed to be addressed. If there was a flaw in maintenance where there was not a checklist or nobody came behind somebody and, you know, tried to, to fix something or double check that it had been done properly, then that needed to be addressed, but it was never done. So for a lot of reasons, this particular accident feels like to me, it was the reverse of what any accident investigation should be. Two of the major causes was never addressed, or I will put it this way. It was never actually concluded um, as to whether or not they had all of the technological advances at that time to come to those conclusions. Well, they may not have, but it doesn't seem as though there was really a lot of research done to find out why. And then to have others die later because even the most basic suggestions such as lighting weren't necessarily followed. This just seems to be in vain. The accident, the lives lost, the pain that Captain Lowell went through because he did. He wrote the book because he was worried about, you know, airline safety. And again, that book is called Airline Safety is a Myth. He fought for safety in flight but this crash itself seems to leave so many unanswered questions. And I do see that more with um, investigations that happened 30, 40, 50 years or more ago as this one did. I do also want to say that I did not choose this topic to in any way lessen the impact or the memory of the flight TWA that took place in 1996. That accident itself did begin an interest in safety for me, whether it's planes, trains, ships, even travel that individually we do every day in cars. It's given me that interest because 
I remember watching watching those scenes and not even imagining what the families must have felt like to be watching that, looking at the loss of so much potential and knowing that it wasn't far from where I went to school, that, you know, even a few years later, I ended up near there um, while attending a friend's wedding to you know no, that's the same ocean that even though it's further down the shore or further down the coast, I swim in the Atlantic Ocean when I was younger. I swam in the Atlantic Ocean when I was younger. All of that's connected. I've flown out of JFK. You know, it's that accident, I think, at least for people of my generation that are old enough to remember it, was kind of a moment that maybe some of our innocence was taken. You know, as a teenager, you feel invincible. You feel like you have the whole world and, you know, all of time in front of you, really. You never think that in just a moment it can be gone. And in flight TWA, 81996 in just a second it was all gone even though it was not just a second it was event after event that led up to the the crash of TWA 1996 or the accident involving TWA 1996 that things could have been looked at earlier if there had been a better understanding of things that may have been avoided and Considering thoughts of fumes and fumes igniting and some similarities within um, both TWA Flight 800s, it just leaves this mark on why wasn't more done to prevent this? Why did people not see this before? But we can't look back and keep asking why, why, why nobody saw it because this is what we learn from. Nobody's perfect and there are certain things that people in no matter what scenario they're in may not predict or be able to predict will occur but again a major frustration is there had been knowledge there had been incidents that involved fumes so in either case why wasn't more done whether we're talking about 1964 or 1996 why wasn't more done to prevent it so, yes, this is one of the more frustrating cases that I've covered because there weren't answers to every question and even suggestions that were given to try to make aviation safety safer or aviation travel safer. They were not really followed. And you have to wonder how many others may have lost their lives because of that. So, again, no, no disrespect intent, intended for anybody um, you know, on TWA flight 800, 1996 and their family members and loved ones, because I do want to honor their memories in, in TWA flight 800, 1964, that has kind of been forgotten about, not only because of the passage of years, but also because of that, that number flight 800, it has the connotations now of the 1996 disaster, and they're forever linked because of that number, but they're also linked because of similarities in regards to 
fire and explosion, and it just should not have happened, in my opinion. There were so many different accidents that that could have been prevented if some more, um, I say more credence would have been given to some of the suggestions in my humble non-aviation based experience. So I'm going to end the episode here. Um, I am recording this on Memorial Day, so I hope everyone is having a good Memorial Day, that you're getting to spend some time with family and hopefully having some beautiful weather to get outside and you know, just enjoy a beautiful spring day. I look forward to talking all of, to all of you next episode. And all my sources are linked in the description as well as contact information if you have any suggestions. Thank you again for tuning in and I will talk to you soon. Bye.